And the best thing, the very best thing of all, is there's time now. There's all the time I need and all the time I want. Time, time, time. Ah, there's time enough at last. We're going to go for a joyride. You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter Death's waiting room, if you dare. And welcome to Strange Highways. Uh, I apologize in advance to everybody listening. My voice is gone because Cleveland entered the Twilight Zone this week, entering a sports championship. Just going to mention that real quick, out the door. I don't know how I'm living life anymore. So I apologize. <laughs> I screamed a lot. So if I come off sounding like a kid that just hit puberty, that's why. So I have other interests than 50-year-old TV shows. Yep. So, yeah. so um, welcome. This is episode eight, Time Enough to Last. I am your host, Kevin. And I am Paul. And uh, we're joined by a... Awesome co-host this week, a uh, guest from the amazing podcast, uh, El Goro from Talk Without Rhythm. How's it going, El Goro? I'm doing fine, but if Cleveland has officially entered the Twilight Zone, does that mean LeBron James's hands are just going to abruptly fall off now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Like, I'm, I'm expecting like all of us to lose like our ability to see and hear and experience things now, like to something, <laughs> you know, or, or basketball becomes illegal or something. Like that's what's going to happen. I'm just surprised Cleveland didn't burn to the ground over the weekend, but we do have the Republican National Convention coming around, so we still got to step up for that. Yeah, it felt really weird to be in that arena and be like, "Oh, there's so much positive energy." I don't know how I feel what's going to happen here in a few weeks. <laughs> it burns us. This is not the Cleveland we know. Yeah. So um, I, I hope everybody enjoyed the last episode with uh, The Lonely, which I really, really enjoyed talking about that. And that was a really fun episode. Yeah, and, and great I hope, stuff. I hope you had any, hope you had a personal assistant and I don't know what you did with it, like checkers and chill or whatever. So, <laughs> But yeah, we're, now we're on to one that is iconic. Yes, yeah. I'm I'm really excited to talk about this. This is one that always sticks out in my mind and I kinda I threw it out to El Goro as like, Hey, what's your favorite episode? You should come on and uh he picked this one immediately. So uh I just wanted to ask uh, what really drew you to this one? Well, it, it was one of those that's just based upon the strength of the twist when I initially saw it. And what really has rewatchability for you, for me, because, you know, the, the twist can only give you so much mileage. It really just comes down to the really great performance from Burgess Meredith. That in the span of this really short episode, he's able to make those huge dramatic swings between kind of a bumbling, very comedic character to embodying an incredible amount of pathos. And whenever I go back to the Twilight Zone, I always try to prioritize episodes with Burgess Meredith he did four of them and I, there's just something intangible about his performance I mean it's obviously he's had a very long very illustrious career and he just brings something so iconically Twilight Zone to the episodes that he uh, shows up on 
Well, yeah, and the fact that they had him come on and do the narration for the movie, and they, they even talked about that this episode in the intro to the movie with Dan Aykroyd and Albert Brooks talking back and forth. Like, you're right, he's kind of been entwined with this, and this is very, when people think the Twilight Zone, this is like the first image they think of. Yeah, and even the uh, teleplay uh, that Serling did for this is so, I mean, this is what I think of when I think of Serling's writing, you know, just that kind of... Uh, uh, just a real nihilistic view of everything, and, and tightly wound, like the whole thing just yes. just, just motors. Yeah, yeah, and, and on top of that, he's a Cleveland boy, so we got to give some love to him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, let's just go ahead. We'll get into uh, air date and the cast and crew. And we'll move on to the the episode itself. Sure. Um, November twentieth, nineteen fifty nine. Um, good news. Number one song right now is not Mac the Knife. Uh, we've moved on to Mister Blue by the Fleetwoods for one week. Yeah, and then we're coming back to Mac the Knife to celebrate that some more. <laughs> Uh, number one film, Ben Hur, which is a big one. Yeah, the, it actually uh, was released this week, um, November sixteenth, nineteen fifty nine. So, um, and also another great movie, The Four Hundred Blows, the Truffaut, Truffaut movie, came out this week as well. And I have to back up one day because I couldn't find anything else significant, but I found something <laughs> really cool. Two things really cool actually for the nineteenth. One Thursday, November nineteenth, was the premiere of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Mm-hmm. And the last Edsel was manufactured, so there oh, was wow. like three years of ugly cars out the door. We're done, you know. So, um, but yeah, just, that was. Uh, uh, I'm just glad that we don't have to talk about Mac the Knife. We'll, we'll talk more about it later, though. Well, now you can go through week after week after week after week talking about Ben Hur. Yeah, yeah. right. Because it, <laughs> it, it, it is the most successful film of the year, and it's going to clean house at the awards and it makes a ton of money. So yeah, yeah. we're going to be talking about Ben Hur for a while. Well, yeah, you can so- always look at the New York Times bestseller list. The uh, top book that I was able to find for this date was Alan Drury's Advise and Consent. But you may not want to talk about that because this is in the middle of its 102-week run oh, wow. as the top oh. of the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, that would, yeah I'm, would... I'm going to avoid that one. <laughs> <laughs> I had the rest an- of the show, Advise and Consent. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so this story was originally a uh, short story that was public published in a uh, science fiction magazine uh, by the author Lynn Venable. And uh, interesting fact about her, her name was actually Marilyn Venable, and she changed it to Lynn just so she was able to sell her stories to editors. Um, yeah, there's a stigmatism. It's like a Lynn's more, it could sound like a man's name, so that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah so um, I had never read the story, so... We all actually got our hands on it and read it for this. Uh, it was really interesting to see where the story came from and what Serling did with it. Yeah, and actually, overall, how short the story... I mean, I know it's a short story, but it was really short. Yeah. It had a lot of of, of you know specific details in it that like mirror this episode. Like, I mean, Serling knew where the meat was in this. Yeah. And just he just... I don't know. Not often when you have short stories do you're able to translate it so well. Yeah. And yeah, same vibe. It was really good. Yeah, so this is the first episode we've covered that isn't officially all Rod Serling. Um he did the teleplay for this and uh I, I think the teleplay for this is brilliant. Um and then we'll go into cast. We got Burgess Meredith, uh the aforementioned Burgess Meredith, playing Henry Bemis, and uh I mean I, I had to write down I mean, we all know what he's done but i was just watching gi joe the movie the other day and uh he actually does the voice for globulus in that 
That's that. one thing I love about Burgess Meredith is that there never seemed to be a role that was beneath him, but he always was able to elevate every role that he was in just by virtue of being Burgess Meredith. Yeah, but I was I was just flipping through his filmography to see if there was something interesting, and I had literally just yesterday watched the G.I. Joe movie, so I was so excited to see that because I never knew that. Um, and like you said, he did uh, four Twilight Zone episodes uh, throughout the next couple of years. We'll get to those. Um <laughs> We got Vaughn Taylor playing Mr. Carsville, and uh, I mean, he was in Psycho. He was also in four other Twilight Zone episodes. Yeah. Um, and then we got Jacqueline DeWitt, who plays Helen Bemis. This was her only Twilight Zone episode. I wasn't too familiar with much uh, else that she's done. And then we have Leela Bliss, who plays Mrs. Chester, who has a tiny bit role. The only thing about uh, Jacqueline DeWitt is I looked through her filmography, and she was on a failed TV show around this time with the best name ever for a TV show called Johnny Midnight. And I was like, that That's... is incredible. And it was about like this guy who used to be an actor and a Broadway guy who became a private detective and actually used his acting and makeup skills to go and solve crimes. And he he had his office behind a theater that also had jazz playing. And it's like <laughs> That's like it. Like I would watch that show. Like, I might have to start a new rockabilly band called Johnny, Johnny Midnight. Midnight. Right? <laughs> right? That's awesome. That's amazing. Why can't they bring that show back? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I guess uh, unless you guys have anything else, we'll jump into the plot. Yeah. So let's go ahead. We'll do this early intro, and then we'll go from there. And the. Best thing, the very best thing of all. That's not Serling. That's um, that's more Burgess <laughs> Sorry, I, we I, all love him. Yeah, so yeah, let's try this again. Witness Mr. Henry Bemis, a charter member in the fraternity of dreamers, a bookish little man whose passion is the printed page, but who is conspired against by a bank president and a wife and a world full of tongue cluckers and the unrelenting hands of a clock. But in just a moment, Mr. Bemis will enter a world without bank presidents or wives or clocks or anything else. He'll have a world all to himself, without anyone. I blame my really thick rim glasses for why I couldn't see what buttons I was pressing. <laughs> That's what well, happened. Make sure you adjust the frames. We don't want them falling off in the middle of the show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. I'd, then I would just never be able to podcast again. <laughs> there was time now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. So, um, like, I, I've seen this episode before. Um, I forgot how much time was spent with like the initial not how much time was spent but how quick we got to the second half of the story and so i i thought i if i remembered it like i which i remembered incorrectly there there was more of him with his wife yeah i i had the same thing because i remember just the uh ending when he walks out kind of jumping ahead here when he walks out into the wasteland um i remember that being real quick but yeah i mean there's like a whole commercial break of him out there i mean it's, yeah, it's way longer than I remembered. Uh, so, oh, so I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. No, no, no. I'm I'm right there with you. I mean, the thing that sticks out on this episode is obviously the second half of it. But I think they do a decent job of sort of building it up. You know, getting a a, a strong sense of who he is and uh, the terrible life he's living. Well, yeah, but I so I notice him. You first see him like working as a bank teller, and he's just looking down at his book, reading, reading, reading. And it seems so reminding today of people on their phones, just mm-hmm. distracted, looking down, and then like doing their jobs half-assed, you know. And it just it made me feel like Henry Bemis was like a pre-millennial, and I don't know how to. <laughs> yeah. you know, this is really really odd. Where he's like, "Oh, did you guys see, see this cat video?" It's like you, I gave you five dollars. I want my change back now. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it brought to mind what I used to do when I was in school. You know, the teacher would be talking, and I would have a book underneath my desk reading. I mean, yeah. that's probably why I enjoyed this episode so much, because I saw a lot of myself in Mr. Bemis. Yeah, and, and like and the fact that like all he wanted to do was escape, 
and and talk to people about all this stuff. And that was a weird thing that ran through too. It was like for working in a bank in which I'm sure you look at a lot of information all the time, no one cared about reading or information. And his wife just almost seemed to be almost like a Luddite. Like, we're not going to have any of this around. Well, even his uh, boss, the bank president as well, was the same way. They were kind of looking down at uh, anything intellectual, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I actually, that's the only other bit of audio I have here is him d- describing his uh, frustration at wanting to read all the time. And I thought it was odd how far his desperation would go for what he wanted to read so I'll, I'll play that real quick and then we'll we'll move on it's just that my wife won't let me read at home so when i get home at night and try to pick up a newspaper she yanks it out of my hand and then after dinner if i try to find a magazine she hides them well it's, i got so desperate that i found myself trying to read the the labels on the condiment bottles on the table now now, now she won't even let me use the ketchup <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, that's one thing that really sticks out between the short story and this. I mean, the way Serling wrote his wife was just so cruel. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, very like, much so. In the in the story, they don't really say the wife is that cruel. Like she just kind of takes the paper away, you know, tells him, hey, we got friends over, you need to clean up, you need to get dressed, and throws it in the fire. And it seemed like that was more of her just cleaning up the house, and she didn't really think anything of it. Whereas in this story, you have his wife, uh, like, scribbling out pages in the book, ripping the pages out, dropping them on the ground. Setting him up to find out that she did it specifically just to spite him. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the, in the story, it seems like, obviously in both of them, there's this thread of sort of anti-intellectualism, you know, a world that's set up against the reader. But in the short story, it seems much more passive, while in this one, it seems much more active. And I'm thinking one of the reasons that might account for that is that when Lynn Venable had wrote the original story, Time Enough at Last, it was around the same time that Bradbury was writing Fahrenheit 451. Okay. And Fahrenheit 451 made such an impact on it, and you can draw little lines of comparison between the society in, in 451 Definitely. those that you know just not not only just burn books but you know consider uh, Montag's wife in that book where she just doesn't see the point of reading whatsoever and it's for, it's it sh- uh, shifts the tone into a more active kind of anti-intellectualism an antagonistic relationship with books I also felt like it was kind of um since the, you look at the headline of the paper in the episode and also in the short story it's mentioned through kind of in passing that there's a lot of like encroaching war coming and there's also the threat of annihilation that it's almost like if you don't see it, it's not there. Yeah. And it almost felt like that was like a fear reaction of like, stop reading. We already have too much to worry about as is. And that this felt like that was kind of like, if, if you keep busy, then nothing bad's going to happen. Yeah. Um, I, I also felt like a lot of this was, uh, it, it really plays today really well because it, it's him trying to take a minute from how fast the world is moving, kind of sit alone with himself and his thoughts. And uh, it's just so interesting to see him <laughs> not be able to do that. And it was funny because I was reading the story and my dog was barking and my girlfriend's yelling <laughs> at the dog. And I'm like reading this little six page short story. And it took me like a good like 45 minutes because I kept having to put it down. And I was like, man, this is way too appropriate. <laughs> well, curiously enough, I was running into the same thing because I was reading it in a break that I had at work, but I was reading it on one monitor while I had my email going on another monitor and I was getting uh, taking phone calls throughout it. And it's just like, wow, yeah, the world does conspire against the reader even to this day. Yeah. And it, it just it felt so <laughs> appropriate today just to be uh, looking at this. I mean, the 
uh, it's not so much books so much anymore for a lot of people, but just time alone. That, well, I mean, I, I, if it's speaking to the world of distraction, yeah. I feel like when you go from like the 50s onward with technology marching as fast and the world getting smaller. That's what I mean. It's kind of speaking to uh, of that. Yeah. It, yeah. Life moving too fast and all that. And, which is kind of spoken to in walking distance where it's like, oh, this was a simpler time when we had weird names for marbles and I would just go and just <laughs> randomly talk to kids on carousels like like back then, you know, so yeah, I think certainly. And also considering that he would write all the time talking into his recorder, like he was using technology to speed things up. And it just makes you wonder. It's like he has this weird relationship about spacing things out, but also acknowledging the technology that's coming and then being a part of that world and speed. Because he writes these things. How many of these did he write? How yeah. fast did he write them? Yeah, it's 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 crazy. Um, yeah, so uh, at his job, after he gets yelled at for reading and he goes home and gets yelled at for reading, um, he they cut back to him at the bank and he ends up taking a break and he goes down to the bank vault and he's in there trying to get a minute to read down there. And uh, that's when the bomb goes off. As yeah. we're clued in because he's reading a newspaper that says the H-bomb and what its effects are and that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it almost like an onion headline. Like, it's almost, it was almost too literal. Yeah. About to yeah. Happen, <laughs> um, but did you notice before that, though, whenever his, the, the wife took the, the pages of the book and ripped them and threw them on the ground, it was really smart how he kneeled down, his glasses fell off, hit the carpet, no problem. Yeah. And then he could still, he could still clearly see that he couldn't see the words. And it was such a big like foreshadowing but also like a screw you like you have perfectly good vision but you can't read these words because they're all marked out yeah mm-hmm. um but it, but this is my time watching through i'm like they're they're showing you these glasses are faulty this entire time yeah and that was i a mean nice they tell. had to have been heavy right oh my goodness yeah. <laughs> lord yeah those things were like an inch thick yeah um, and it was a sly visual way to sort of set up that conceit i mean one of the things i noticed when i was reading the short story is that the author had put those little hints towards the fallibility of his glasses you know talking that um his optometrist is a person who works on glasses yes yeah uh that that he lives in the next town over and the fact that the frames are loose so they had a tendency to slide down his nose you know all these little hints of what was to come yeah and they were doing the same thing in the television show albeit visually yeah, just smart script. Yeah, I, I think they yeah. even said uh, that he was trying to get like a second pair or something. And mm-hmm. he, he wasn't able to do that. So, yeah, just nice little like that. My the what I really have enjoyed about this episode, watching it again with uh, critical eye, is just how tight it is in terms of um, like just the, it gives you everything you need and then it delivers on everything. Yeah, so nothing feels like cheap and unearned. Like it's it's so and that makes the ending even more like devastating. Because yeah. it was there for you the entire time. Definitely. Um, so after the bomb goes off, he goes outside. And, uh, well, he goes through the bank. And I love, in the story, they get they get kind of Lovecrafty with describing dead bodies and just saying yeah. lifeless lumps and <laughs> stuff like that. And I love how he did it in the show, though, where he had the uh, bank manager... Uh, preparing his speech into a tape recorder yeah and uh it was just playing and when he looked down he could see the arms sticking out from underneath his desk and the mm-hmm. tape just ended it was such a like haunting way to show that without being overly uh gruesome yeah, yeah. gruesome like the story kind of gets yeah. well then there was one one shot in particular that i love every time i see the episode it's just before the bomb uh, hits and you just see the book flip open and his pocket watch crack 
Yeah. And it's just something that's so innocuous, but something so far removed from reality. I mean, even even an, uh, if an atomic bomb dropped like that, that wouldn't happen in the real world. But it's that sort of visual cue that you are about to enter into a very weird place. You're about to enter into the Twilight Zone. Yeah, and uh, more on the nose, the clock at the end of it as well. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. That's not the first time he's done that, because, I mean, even in uh, Where Is Everybody? Yeah, there the, the, are clocks the broken all over clocks, the place. Yeah. You know, yeah, so, I mean, that's a, it's a good visual cue, though, to let people know that, you know, yeah. <laughs> that, that things, <laughs> things are weird now. Um, and I, I know Kevin's a big fan of Italian horror movies, so I'm going to uh, put this to you. Were you getting uh, Fulci Beyond vibes from the matte painting of the blasted landscape? Oh, yeah, the end of Beyond and everything with that, it looks just like it. <laughs> I thought so. Which, the production and design on this episode is beautiful. Oh, amazing. So when he yeah. goes out into the landscape and everything, and you see that just painted backdrop, that's it's lit like perfectly. You can't tell where the set ends and that backdrop begins. And I just, oh my god, it's it's beautiful. And the steps at the end is probably one of the most iconic Twilight Zone shots in the, the entire series for me when he's walking up the library steps. Yeah, absolutely. Like I just this one felt like its game went up compared to the ones we've seen previous, where it's yeah. like. And this is one of the first ones uh, written for production, if I remember right. So, like, it, it's like I don't know if they had more thought to put into it, but yeah, it was just like the second half of it, like it, it's just uh, much better than what we've seen, where there's been just a couple, one or two locations. And this you is- see, and I, and I wonder if if they treated this series like they do with a lot of other uh, long running series. Star Trek was very big on this, where they would have one or two episodes where it's clear a big chunk of the season budget went into, and then in order to compensate for that, they'd have one or two you know talky episodes with the crew uh, crew uh, having a conference. And then if you wa- as you're watching the Twilight Zone, you you can see the the slower or the lower scale episodes, you know, the ones that are just one or two sets. I mean, the last one you guys talked about where it's just all out in Death Valley. Obviously, they didn't have to pay much for that. Yeah, no. So I wonder if at the time that they were arranging and organizing the this season, if they had earmarked time enough for, at last for a slightly higher budget. Yeah, I'm sure they had to have. It, it just seems like... Well, they uh, saved money on actors, I can tell you that. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> well... Possibly. (laughs) (laughs) Burgess Meredith may have been a little bit more expensive than some of the others. Um. (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, like, so, um, it's just interesting, like, uh, we talked before about the intellectual versus non-intellectual. I wanted to just at least call out that they specifically accused him of being a reader, which I thought was a weird phrase. Yeah, beyond uh, intellectualism versus anti-intellectualism, introvert versus extrovert just yeah. like because mm. I, I i tend to teeter you know like i can have my moments but i i love being in my head and everything you know and uh i feel like i'm constantly battling real life you know you go to work and you have to talk to people and it's so hard sometimes just to like get up the strength to like go and actually speak to someone you know and <laughs> that's all he wanted and he seemed to be being punished for that yeah absolutely and uh so my then my question for you is is his search of knowledge is that what saved him initially or is it just more his wanting to not deal with people saved him um well (laughs) (laughs) i would say i would say it's more of him just not wanting to deal with people but it's a careful what you ask for kind of situation you know because he didn't want to deal with people and he got what he wished for but at what expense, you know? 
So it, I don't know if it really saved him, though. <laughs> well, in terms of like the bomb going off, that's that's the only reason I was like mentioning because that was a, a a nicely convenient place to go want to read during a lunch break. Yeah, and and, and you know, in terms of a bomb going off. Yeah, and, and it, it sort of fits into that narrative that we were discussing earlier, the idea that there are people that don't want to read because they want to escape from the realities of this Cold War setting they're in. Yeah. And uh, appropriately enough, it is his desire to read that has him separate himself from the rest of society and thus is you know immune to uh, the destruction. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, yeah. it's entirely possible one could one could draw the conclusion that uh, you know if the people whose fingers were on the trigger of the bombs, if they spent more time reading David Copperfield, maybe they wouldn't want to blow everybody up. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. That's of, very true. Because the whole world was supposed to be like in front of you and wonderful and all these books to read. Yeah, why would you want to blow that up? Right. <laughs> I mean, now it's like all the cat videos I want to watch. I don't want to blow up the world. You know? uh, but I, YouTube I also, will save us all. Yeah. Right. Um, I did like how the music started off all light and playful until the, he. Went went downstairs to the vault for like it was very upbeat it felt like it felt like um very much like the goofier stuff we've seen so far where um like uh, the escape clause where the music stayed fun the entire time yeah and well like, it kind of runs parallel to his character because he kind of starts out like a bum like you said a bumbling cartoon character almost you know yeah and uh as things progress and get more serious and we're forced to deal with what's happening in the real world he kind of the music kind of grows with him and becomes a little bit more serious. Yeah. And then another question real quick. Did his wife ever love him? I'm wondering about the merits of that marriage. Like, why did they get married? Cause I don't think he ever changed as a person. It seemed like he was always like a, like a smaller, like mousy guy that always wanted to read. And she just seemed like, just like she couldn't stand to be in the same room with him. And it was almost like, I, it makes me wonder about that marriage, how it came to be. And I know I'm overthinking it, but it's like she was really cruel to him. And it's like, did they love each other at one point? Was this a marriage of convenience? Well, like, divorce wasn't as uh, rampant as it is now. So I think they were stuck together for better or worse. And you see, I think she dropped a Freudian slip that she actually has multiple husbands throughout the entire uh, United <laughs> yeah. States. And, you know. That's true. That's funny. Um, yeah. So do uh, you have any other, any other notes? Because I mean, I know we're getting to the ending here pretty, pretty quick. Yeah, I, I again one thing that wasn't really in the uh, story that I really like is when he finds the gun in the rubble of the sporting goods store. Again, just Serling bringing this bleakness to this teleplay, just oh, yeah. uh, of him pulling that gun out. It just it, it's it's so haunting just seeing him put that gun to his head. Like watching it this time, like it, it's it's been years and years since I've seen it, and just I, it, it was kind of shocking to see, you know, just. Burgess Meredith, like a close-up, just yeah. the full frame of his face with a gun to his head, <laughs> you know, asking, why should I want to live? And it's, well, just, no, it, it's so haunting. And I was reading some of the commentary that had been written about this particular episode, and one thing that was brought up by some critics is that this episode was much bleaker than what normally could be allowed on television at this time. I mean, even just the act of showing a nuclear bomb going off. You know, a lot of different shows were not really going that direction. The w reason the Twilight Zone seemed to got, get away with it is because it was ostensibly a fantasy. You know, so it's one, one uh, step away from reality so they could explore this kind of content. Yeah, and I know that's something that, that they use to great effect throughout the series to kind of speak their mind about certain things and not have to be so on point. And you mentioned Star Trek earlier. Star Trek was like they were kings of that too. Oh, definitely. Yeah, uh, but yeah, that's I could I could only imagine. And this gets to what we're, you're talking about how this twist is so so big. I 
I'm jealous of the people the first time this aired to make, just to sit there. I want to, I just want to know what the reaction was when you got to the very end. Well, I, I tell you what, because when I first saw this episode, I had no idea about the twist. You know, I, I hadn't been it hadn't been spoiled for me. So I remember distinctly we were watching it in an eighth grade science class because every once in a while, you know, the teacher would just not have anything for us. So he would put on episodes of The Twilight Zone that he had on VHS tapes. And when that twist happened the entire classroom just exploded. And these are, you know, like th- uh, 13, 14-year-old kids. They're just like, what, what? <laughs> so it's, it was powerful, man. It was, and I think, again, that's, that speaks to why this episode has stuck with me so much. It is that the echo of that one powerful gut punch that just continues to this day. I mean, even when I uh, had posted up a picture that showed I was watching this episode, you know, I was getting response from friends. They were just like, oh, that's the best episode ever, that twist. Yeah, it's the one everyone remembers just because of that bleakness. <laughs> but I think mm-hmm. it, I think it's aged really well. Yeah, like because, I said, it's yeah. it's totally relevant today. Yeah, I mean, you can draw you can draw comparisons to anything that's going on today with this episode. Well, and this is the first time I feel like we had like a truly likable character as the the you know, protagonist. Even though I feel like the previous episode you kind of related to, um, oh, uh, Corey. Oh yeah, um, James yeah. Corey, a little bit, but I I still question that he that his murder his murder intent. But I know that was a whole other <laughs> debate. Um, but this one, you actually kind of feel for him, even though it's like you like stand up for yourself and tell them that you want to read. You kind of was like, okay, I can get behind this, and it's like so the nice guy gets kind of what he wants, and it's like, and the nice guy's not even getting out of this. And this was like the first like I feel like big dark step. The Twilight Zone's like this is going to get, you know. It just it felt like it grew up a little bit in the matter of this the got to this episode. <laughs> if that makes sense, that's not even the right words I want to use, but it's like it just showed you like no one is safe. Like you know this what's going on. Last minute, we're done now. Yeah, like, and at the same time, because you know I, I've I've gone through different you know I've essentially grown up with this episode. I've been watching it since I was about thirteen, and you know I used to think that this episode was unnecessarily cruel. You know, because it's the idea that Bemis is a likable person, that he didn't do anything wrong. His only sin was wanting to read. He wasn't even antisocial. He just he wanted to share his passions with people. So it almost didn't feel like the karmic retribution that we're primed to expect out of, you know, Twilight Zone episodes or Tales from the Crypt, which is a big part of my childhood, too. Mm. It just didn't feel earned. But, you know, watching it now. It almost feels like that if they had ended it in any other way, it would have mitigated the impact of the nuclear bomb. And we even see that unto today. There are plenty of people out there that have these kind of apocalyptic fantasies. In the you know pop culture world, it's all uh, around zombies. It's like, yeah. oh, I, I can't wait for the zombie apocalypse. I'll grab my friends and you'll grab shotguns and it'll be awesome. And really what this is showing to you is that if we take that step, if we uh, go towards this sort of truly apocalyptic scenario, it's going to take no prisoners. There's not going to be anybody happy at the end of it. And for a culture that was living under this active threat of nuclear annihilation, they needed that kind of message. They needed something to say. It's like, you know, all all that duck and cover stuff and all that bomb shelters you're building. No, the bombs hit. We're all going to die. Yeah. yeah, and this is like, what, four years away from the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? So, I mean, this mm-hmm. is like starting to get to like the peak of, yeah, of yeah, that. Uh, um, I mean, it's fresh in everyone's mind. And I, I can only imagine watching this 
during the time like you said watching when it came out like this this had to have scared people to death <laughs> like you know as cartoony as it or, starts or and at everything least convince like, them to be like you know what i need a second pair of glasses i need, yeah, I need to call right? that's very I need to call and get that taken care of right now um well hopefully uh, uh library uh card membership went up after this episode <laughs> yeah it's like go out and read it could save your life for eight hours additional you know uh, well right. i love that there's no fear of radiation or anything because they didn't really know what the uh atomic bomb would do so yeah <laughs> he walks outside i'm like yeah it's perfectly safe just go eat food <laughs> yeah one thing I'm, i wanted to try to look up but i didn't get around to was trying to figure out how common the knowledge of fallout was to to the average person you know, because we've all grown up in a time that we knew not just the destructive power of the bomb, but everything that came after that. So you're watching this, and it's like, well, he's walking through a nuclear blasted wasteland. He's going to survive for maybe a day or two. But, you know, for everybody else there, was the idea of fallout and radiation, was that something they knew about? I don't think it was. When I was reading, they were saying there wasn't much known about the effects of after the bomb was dropped. And... uh Soon after that, they started doing testing and everything, so they figured out that you need like at least two weeks to let the radiation go down. Well, and there was that naval shipyard level uh, in San Francisco. What's it called? Hunter's Point or something? I'm not sure. Uh, it's 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 one of those like ghost town areas, like in San Francisco now, where the U.S. Uh, Navy had all these ships running all the time, and they were carrying uh, like you know uh, cargo that was had radiation around it, and these people were working around it all the time. Yeah. And it's like one of those things where it's like 10, 15 years. It's like why are all these people dying of cancer? And it was just like it. Now the whole thing shut down because you can't go like you can't go near it with any type of relative like staying there because something bad is going to happen. And it's like right off the port of San Francisco. Yeah. So yeah, it was like this was at the time right after World War II and everything's still building and big and we're invincible. Yeah, I can see how they they wouldn't tell people. You know, probably not a good idea. Yeah, so I, I can't fault Serling well, for that. Or uh, Didn't they have the Venable. machines that did the shoe x-rays, too, that at the time, in the, in the shoe stores? They actually shoot x-rays in your feet oh, to so you can see how your feet I, would fit. I think I've heard of those. Yeah, like they would just be like, <laughs> oh, let's terrifying. see how your bones go in the shoe here. Yeah. And your foot may fall off later, but your shoe's going to fit really well. <laughs> like, radiation was like this magic cure-all, so I don't think people really understood it. Though at the same time, we we do have to acknowledge that there was obviously the anxiety about radiation because this was still in the period where you would get the, you know, the giant monster movies, you know, uh, the Godzillas or yeah, the, uh, them, you know. Yeah, that's very true, which so, was up to this point, as far as I know, that had to have been the only films that really covered this. Yeah, because if you covered it in more of the absurd, it was an approachable topic, yeah. right? So this this had to have been one of the first stories that really covered the atomic bomb as being a serious subject like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the most serious movie I can think from this period, and granted, you know, I'm not uh, as knowledgeable about this as, you know, some experts out there, but maybe the day the Earth stood still. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense, because, I mean, that was one of the like the first big, like, hey, we have the ability to destroy ourselves. Let's take a second and, look at, and think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I'm- I can think of ones from the 60s. There were some live ones, um, you know, live specials that they did, but I can't really remember because that was also in the period where you had, you know, Dr. Strangelove and them starting to make fun of things. Yeah. Yeah, I can't think of much else really prior to this. And and I know that's going to be a recurring theme of, like, revisiting, um, like, the verge of war, like, Cold War themes, like the, you know, like, and I know that's something that's going to come through a lot, especially even later in the season. There's going to be a couple of those as well. So this will be, it's interesting to go and be 50 years removed for something and look back and see how all that permeated, like, culture, and then we think about what's going on today and how 
oh, the the sad things that go on around here, how that permeates and colors things too. But we're like, oh, no, no, that was 50 years ago. Things well, were way different then. I think it'll be interesting <laughs> to go back and watch some of these superhero movies in yeah. like 20 years <laughs> and just right. see how that, uh, what really informed those ones. I mean, as far as like post 9-11 and everything, um, I think there's going to be some real interesting discussion about that. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. So, let's just go ahead. We'll get to the twist, our twist meter, which I think we've already kind of spoiled. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And El Goro, we'll let you go first. One out of five. Uh, on the scale of one to five, to me, this has to be a five, right? I mean, when I first saw it, I did not see it coming, and it was just a visceral gut punch of a twist. And it's one of those that the twist almost overshadows the rest of the episode, but like I said, it's it, it, that doesn't detract from the from the rest of it. But it's it certainly stands out as one of the great iconic Twilight Zone moments ever. Yeah, um, I'm gonna have to agree with you. This is the one episode I think of first when I think of Twilight Zone, and it's one I. I think I spoke on this on episode zero. I always used to go over one of my friend's house when we were little and his dad had the whole series taped on VHS. We'd always throw on random episodes and there's a few episodes I can remember. I I was really young at the time and this twist always stuck out to me and it's always the most memorable for me. And like you said, it is just a gut punch and just watching it this time really reaffirmed it because it's probably been about 15 years since I've seen this. And it just it, it blew me away, even knowing what was going to happen this time. So five out of five. Yeah, and I want to give it a five too, not just for you know being like I want to follow the crowd. No, because uh, <laughs> um, I'm usually a little harsh on these things. I see them than Kevin, but I was waiting to like, cut to you, you and be like, like one, one out of five. That's a zero Saw it coming. Everyone knows this. Uh, if anybody watches Futurama, you know what's going to happen. <laughs> um, no, because this this type of twist is has been referenced because it's it's it resonated so well that for me it was hard to like. I've already seen variations of it coming in. Um, and plus, like I said, Futurama, they had the scary door segments where it was the basically scary door. the scary door. <laughs> and it was like that, that whole joke is like his eyes broke and then his hands fell off and, and his tongue fell out, you know? Um, so it's, it's very like, it stuck with people. I'll give it a five just because I can only imagine like watching it for the first time sight unseen, especially considering the other six episodes that have come up to this point. Like you're waiting for maybe like a joke or something and it's a joke. It's it's not a very funny one. Oh yeah, it's you know? definitely a joke. Yeah, <laughs> Serling's playing a joke and, on somebody, and even his in narration is very like judgmental of Mister Beavis. Like he's kind of like is very kind of this like dismissive, like like a lonely man or yeah. Yeah, that was one thing I was going to bring up. There was another middle narration in this. Yes, there was. And, uh, yeah. I found out that he only did that four times throughout the series, so oh. that's why it feels so off. Like hmm. it was this was one of four times they did it, and we've covered two of them so oh, far. Okay. Yeah, because, well, you had to have him walk around the wasteland for a bit, finding, like, a sweet couch, and then hanging out. I forgot about that, too. I'm like, well, if I had a couch like that, too, I'd probably be okay for a while. That's another great <laughs> shot, though, of him just laying on the couch, and they kind of do this wide shot, and they, they pull back, and uh, you just see that backdrop behind him and the crooked couch right yeah. in the middle of the frame. I, well, the tracking shot of him walking up the steps the first time. Oh, yeah, they do that whole crane shot pulling yeah, back. that it's was beautiful. beautiful yeah. Yep. And on that couch sequence, we got our uh, cigarette for the episode. There you go. Yep. Yeah, our, our one cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> no, as he falls you. asleep and he drops his cigarette on his coat, I'm just thinking, man, he's going to set himself on fire. <laughs> 
Yeah, I just I, thank you for bringing up the cigarette count. I almost forgot about that because it's very important. I keep track of the number of cigarettes I see watching the Twilight Zone. <laughs> it wasn't a space cigarette. No, this it, week, was, it was a post-apocalyptic cigarette. Man, thank- just wait until you actually see Rod Serling start introducing the episodes. That guy was never without a cigarette. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That's that's, that's just going to fill up the quota every single episode. Then you know. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I just I mean. This episode couldn't get much more like, I mean, this is a perfect, perfect encapsulation of the Twilight Zone and every reason why I love it and why I wanted to talk about it. Like, I can't really go through and I know I nitpick and sometimes I'm like, but what if this, what if this? Like, I really don't have anything. Like, it's just like the, the cues are there. The foreshadowing's there. Like, Serling even went on to say that this was like one of his two favorite episodes he ever did. And that's, like, you know, like, what can you say? Like, it's just, it's like to get this perfect this early on sets the bar really high going forward. Yeah, and just reading the source material this time was so interesting to see, like, he really did change it for the better, yeah. you know? Like, the changes he made to the story, I feel like, made it that much more powerful. Um, Definitely. Yeah, oh. I think that's all I got. <laughs> we all agree, hooray! All right, so one yeah. last question yeah. for you, and since this episode ended on a down note, we're going to continue that on that uh, sort of theme. Do you think he was able to find the gun again? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Well, he's got enough time to find it. So, I yeah. mean, t- he's got time enough. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to think he's going to start touching the stacks of books and then, like, because he, he gave them, like, months, like, J- July, August. I'm waiting for, like, September to knock him over and he'll just be stuck underneath it forever. <laughs> you know, that's it, you know? Like, just, you know, like, you know, killed by the thing he loved, you know? Yeah. Like, that, that'd be, that's really sad. Wow. Yeah, I don't it is, know. isn't yeah. it? <laughs> Serling would be proud. Yeah. Um, all right, so before we get to, we'll, just, we'll see what the next episode is here in a second. Let's 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 go ahead and let's shill all our wonderful things that we do here in wrapping up. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, El Goro, you go first. Plug everything you got. All right. Well, as was mentioned at the top of the episode, I'm the host of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. It is a weekly podcast devoted to films. Each episode, I choose uh, about two to three movies that are usually have some sort of theme and talk about them, get a lot of guests on, but sometimes it's just me. Most recently, we've been going through a month of satanic-influenced films, covering films like uh, The Lords of Salem, Witch, Rosemary's Baby. The most recent episode I put up was Amityville 2, The Possession, and the currently in theaters film from James Wan, The Conjuring. And you can find that just by searching for Talk Without Rhythm, or you can go on to the main website, tworpodcast.blogspot.com. Yeah, which I'm loving the satanic uh, June here. I, I figured you would. <laughs> I was I was so excited when you posted you were doing this. And uh, did you post an episode on six six one six? Please tell me that you did. I did. I did not uh, hit that one. No, unfortunately. Oh, that would have been that would have been amazing. It'd have been so metal if that would have happened. Yeah, it would have. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember I saw the uh, um, the Omen remake on six six six. Oh, there yeah, you go. Yeah. Ten years ago. So, <laughs> and honestly, that's the thing that put it into my mind because uh, also they put out the Omen remake in 2006 and then Slayer put out a new album on 666 so yeah, I whenever that. June 6 rolls around I just start thinking about dark subject material yeah oh, perfect it's good stuff <laughs> I can't wait to see Conjuring 2 and listen to that nice um yeah, and then you can check me out, my other podcast, Radio Violenta. We're on Stitcher and iTunes and also on Facebook. And then uh, Strange Highways, like us on Facebook. Uh, talk about some Twilight Zone-related things on there. You can email us at strangehighwayspodcast at gmail.com. 
And uh, again, we're on iTunes and Stitcher, so rate and review us if you like the show. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just throw my other show out as well, because if you're, if you're well. a podcaster, you do like seven shows with 8,000 people, and then, <laughs> and then you all feel like you're obligated to listen to everybody's shows and then tell everybody. It's very much like a religion. It's like, hey, can I, do you have a minute? Can I just tell you about these other podcasts I listen to? <laughs> um, I do Invasion of the Podcast with my uh, co-host, Joe. Uh, we put it out once a week. It's, it's a little bit more um, mainstream, like comics, movies, video games. Uh, I know this week because we're invasion of the podcast. We're going to be talking about alien invasion movies, uh, hmm. just because it seems appropriate with uh, Independence Day resurgence, which is not coming out on Independence Day, but that's a whole other thing. It's just so um, stupid. Can I, I just yeah. say that? Yeah. So, <laughs> brief aside, when I was watching at the watch party last night for the Cavs in the fourth quarter, they played this big inspirational video with all these coaches, like from movies, like giving clips about like you know win the game and all that. In the middle of it was Bill Pullman from Independence Day. Oh yeah, and it was part of his speech. And I'm like, wait. That doesn't really fit with all this. Like, like it's like beat the team, beat the team, and kill all those aliens from another world. Well, it doesn't matter what he's saying. That that speech gets me hyped every time it I does, hear it. So. I mean, I was almost in tears anyway, no matter what. But I was like, something about it seemed really kind of ill fitting. But and, and that's neither here nor there. I remember uh, going to a baseball game once where they were trying to you know ramp people up. So they had samples from that. They had samples from Braveheart. They had samples from all the great movie speeches. <laughs> I mean, so it's got sure. it's gotten play for years. Um, so next episode. Uh, is Perchance to Dream is the name of the, the, the episode itself. I don't know anything about this one. Yeah, I, I don't know either. I'm happy you looked it up because I totally forgot to look what the next episode well, was. I'm, I'm glad I remember because my, my notes on my laptop, my laptop just conked out. So I'm like, I had to remember the name of the episode real quickly. So um, I just, because, you know, it's post-apocalyptic. Everything's failing me right now. So I had to <laughs> quickly remember and keep that knowledge in my head, like Fahrenheit 451. Well, the city's starting to burn down, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, El Goro, thank you uh, for coming on the show. This was a lot of fun and I feel like a way classier, more highbrow conversation that Kevin and I <laughs> have see uh, people keep saying that but if you if you know me in real life i am one of the most low class people you will ever meet <laughs> um all right so i think that will do it uh yeah. so uh yeah have a safe week uh get your glasses checked if you need to um so don't they don't fall off and yeah, we're those things that tie onto the back of the glasses that go around your head well i mean i i've bought them before when i go to cedar point to keep the the glasses when i'm riding rides yeah, that's my only uh word of advice is go buy some of those <laughs> or learn learn to read braille there you go A robot 